Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might be interested in from the Parcast Network. Some of my favorite stories from history involve real-life spies and spy games, which makes me happy to hear there's a new show from Parcast called Espionage. Each episode of Espionage dives into the history of and what it takes to be a real-life spy. Every week, Espionage explores this high-stakes world and analyzes the missions behind the world's most incredible spies, as well as what brought their covert operations into the public eye. Find out the real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. Search for and subscribe to Espionage wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit parcast.com slash espionage to listen now. And now, back to my show. Throughout much of the 18th and 19th centuries, the British Navy was, without question, the most powerful military force on the planet. Whereas several other countries boasted formidable sailing ships of their own, none could compare to that of the British whose ships were spread far and wide across the oceans. Their ships were faster, tougher, and better built than any others. And they contained many of the latest technological advancements, such as modern chronometers, copper-sheathed hulls, and carronades, an updated and deadlier version of a short-range cannon that proved vital in winning many naval battles against pirates and other hostile forces. But it wasn't just the modern technology that made the British naval vessels so formidable. Any piece of technology is only as good as the people using it, after all. And the British naval vessels were staffed with tens of thousands of the best-trained sailors in the world. British sailors worked off a system of meritocracy where, if you were dedicated enough, and worked hard enough, you could work your way up through the ranks to become a captain yourself perhaps even an admiral commanding a whole fleet of ships. James Cook was born on October 27, 1728, in a small village in Yorkshire. Although he came from humble beginnings, Cook enlisted in the Royal Navy in 1755 and quickly rose through the ranks to become something of a naval legend. Cook's achievements as an explorer and navigator forced mapmakers to have to completely redraw their maps of the Pacific, and changed Western perceptions of world geography. In 1769, the planet Venus was due to pass in front of the Sun, a rare cosmological event that would only be visible in the Southern Hemisphere. James Cook was given command of the HMS Endeavour 
for an expedition that would take a group of scientists to Tahiti to observe the event. After which, Cook followed this up by exploring the coast of New Zealand and Australia, claiming a portion of Australia's eastern coast for the Royal Crown, and naming it New South Wales. He followed this up in 1772 with another major expedition to the South Pacific, and over the course of the next three years, explored the Antarctic, the New Hebrides, and even discovered New Caledonia. Now, any of those feats alone would have been quite something for a sailor of the era. But Cook was an explorer always on the lookout for the next horizon, and he went on to follow those expeditions up with yet another expedition as the commander of the HMS Resolution and Discovery that would have a fundamental impact on the future United States. In 1778, Cook discovered a cluster of lush tropical islands in the Pacific Ocean that he named the Sandwich Islands in honor of one of his personal heroes, Lord Subway. Okay, so that last part I just made up. But he really did name the place after John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich. And yes, that is the person often credited with inventing the concept of tucking a piece of meat between two slices of bread. Although James Cook is credited with being the first European to set foot on these islands, it turns out they were already occupied by an indigenous population. And those people already had their own name for the so-called Sandwich Islands. They had named it after a legendary explorer of their own a fisherman and navigator named Hawaiialoa, who, according to folktales, discovered the islands many generations earlier. The name the locals gave the biggest island in the chain was, of course, Hawaii. Captain Cook would make two more trips to the islands over the following years. It's believed that on Cook's first visit, these strange, pale-skinned visitors were worshipped as gods by the native Hawaiians, who had never seen anyone quite like Cook and his men before. But things weren't quite so hunky-dory after Cook's second visit, when one of his crewmen died unexpectedly, exposing the Europeans as mere mortals. After that, relations between the British sailors and the Hawaiians became strained. Cook realized it would probably be safest if his men hightailed it out of this island paradise, and on February 4, 1779, they set sail out of Kilakeko Bay. But rough seas damaged the foremast on one of the ships, and Cook and his men were forced to turn back. This time, the Hawaiians greeted the British sailors by throwing rocks at them. This quickly devolved into a full-blown armed battle between the British and the Hawaiians, during which the British ended up shooting and killing a native chief. After that, a mob of angry natives swarmed Cook's party. They tried to fight them off, but soon found themselves overwhelmed, and James Cook was stabbed and killed by the angry mob. Although Hawaii has a reputation as being paradise on earth, it also has a long history of violence, death, and racial tension between the native Hawaiians and outsiders from Europe and the Americas. When James Cook landed there in 1779, the indigenous population numbered around 300,000. But by 1853, diseases brought to the island by Christian missionaries had devastated the population, whittling it down to only 70,000. During the 1820s, the first white Americans arrived in the islands with the intention of bringing Christianity to the masses. These missionaries soon convinced the natives that private land ownership was God's will, and that God's will included keeping all the best land for themselves. They built vast sugar plantations and used the local Hawaiians as cheap labor. In 1893, Sanford B. Dole, 
of Dole Pineapple fame along with a group of other wealthy planters led a coup over the last Hawaiian monarch, Lili Uakalani. This allowed the United States to annex the islands, seize control from the natives, and turn it into a U.S. territory. Two years later, supporter of the former queen tried to stage an insurrection to put her back in power. But the coup failed, and Queen Liliuokalani was charged with treason and placed under house arrest. The queen would remain in exile for the rest of her life, until her death in 1917, at age 79. In the years following the queen's death, the Americans and Hawaiians developed a sort of uneasy truce. Racial tensions continued to simmer beneath the surface, and feelings of resentment stuck with a lot of older Hawaiians who vividly remembered how the Americans stole their land. At just before 1 a.m. on Sunday, September 13, 1931, a car carrying five people was driving along Honolulu's Ala Moana Road when the car's headlights shone on a figure standing in the middle of the road. The figure was an elegantly dressed woman, definitely not the sort of lady you would expect to see walking alone down an empty road in the pitch-black night. They pulled over and the driver rolled down the window. The woman leaned in, and that's when they noticed one side of her face was swollen and scuffed. Are you white people, she asked. Thank God. Then she climbed into the front seat without being asked and ordered them to drive her home. Thus began a case involving sex, revenge, murder, race, and politics. A case that laid bare the dark underbelly of this exotic island paradise and threatened to destroy it once and for all. I'm Nate Hale coming to you live from my private bunker beneath the Denver airport. And this is The Conspirators. By the summer of 1931, Honolulu, Hawaii had grown into one of the United States' great tourist destinations. Wealthy tourists known as Haoles flocked to Waikiki Beach to swim, surf, and soak in the sun. The term Haole originally referred to anything foreign brought to the islands, including plants and animals. Although after the 19th century, white missionaries began being referred to as Haoles as well, and the name stuck ever since. By the early 20th century, the tourist industry became big business in the islands. Hawaiian natives often took to the beaches in the service industry, acting as beachside waiters or surf instructors. Those who didn't work the tourist trade often scraped by with Depression-era jobs doing construction, working on the docks, or at the Dole Pineapple Cannery. Occasionally, one of the young natives was able to score a job in local government, or perhaps even a spot in the Honolulu police force. But more often than not, those higher-paying jobs went to fresh-off-the-boat haoles looking to put down stakes in paradise. Many neighborhoods surrounding Waikiki Beach were little more than slums for the poor natives. On Friday nights, parades of haoles, especially young sailors, would show up in those neighborhoods wanting to spend their paychecks with the local sex workers. One of the things the travel brochures didn't mention was that racial tensions ran high throughout the Hawaiian Islands for the first half of the 20th century. The native Hawaiians were forced to live under the rule of an openly hostile white supremacist oligarchy. Racism was everywhere. Many of the sailors stationed around Honolulu came from the Deep South and brought a lot of racist attitudes with them. The sight of white women frolicking with the brown-skinned natives enraged many of the white sailors. 
Other military officers like then-Army Major and later General George S. Patton were frequent visitors to Hawaii. Patton was close friends with one of the island's most powerful business leaders, Walter S. Dillingham, and the two of them had a lot in common. Even after the Holocaust, Patton still infamously wrote that Jews were lower than animals, a subhuman species without any of the cultural or social refinements of our time. Dillingham once testified before Congress that, quote, God made the white race to rule and the colored to be ruled. He added that God certainly didn't intend white people to have to toil back-breaking labor in the fields. That was something meant only for brown-skinned people. There were articles published in major newspapers and magazines that blamed all Hawaii's troubles on their loose attitude toward the mixing of the races. By 1931, there were more than 20,000 American sailors stationed in Honolulu. On Saturday nights, the streets would be packed with off-duty sailors looking to cut loose. Among those sailors was an Annapolis graduate named Lieutenant Thomas Hedges Massey, a submariner based in Pearl Harbor. On September 12, 1931, Massey dragged his 20-year-old wife Thalia to an alcohol-fueled party at the Alawai Inn. Thalia came from a privileged, aristocratic family, and she was never going to be the sort of party girl Thomas wanted her to be. She thought her husband's Navy friends were beneath her. She married Thomas when she was just 16, and by the time she was 20, she had begun to regret every minute of it. In the time she and Thomas had been living in the islands, Thalia had developed a rather nasty reputation. She was known to get into violent public arguments with Tommy. Sometimes she'd hit him, throw things at him, even bite him, all before she'd eventually stomp off in a huff and disappear. By the time the night of September 12th came about, Tommy had already informed Thalia that he wanted a divorce. The thought of a divorce tarnishing her reputation horrified Thalia. She had been raised to believe that to a woman of her station, reputation was key. Eventually, the couple reached a compromise. Thalia agreed to try to behave herself publicly, and Tommy would try to be a little more patient with her. If things didn't work out, then Thalia was planning on going back to the mainland to live with her parents. Thalia made it clear from the start that she didn't want to attend the party that evening, but Thomas Massey wouldn't allow her to be a party pooper and insisted that she go. She spent much of her time sulking around the Alawai Inn. By then, she had cemented her reputation with the other naval officers, and she got the cold shoulder from pretty much everyone. At one point, one of the officers named Lieutenant Ralph Stogsdall got into an argument with her. Some people claimed that Stogsdall, who was six foot five and went by the nickname Moose, made a pass at Thalia. Other witnesses claimed he told her flat out that nobody liked her. Either way, Thalia responded by slapping the big man across the cheek before she angrily fled the party. Thomas Massey never even noticed his wife was gone. Even if he had, he probably would have let her go anyway. Thomas was used to his wife's antics, and he'd seen her stomp off plenty of times before. When the party broke up around 1 a.m., Tommy finally realized Thalia was nowhere to be found. He made a phone call to his house to see if she'd gone home without him, but Thalia didn't answer. He didn't hear from her for another hour. When he finally got Thalia on the phone, she was crying hysterically and begged him to rush home. When he got there, Thalia told Tommy that she'd been assaulted. Tommy immediately phoned the police, even though Thalia pleaded with him not to. 
When police officers arrived on the scene, they noted that Thalia was visibly drunk, and she showed signs of a beating. Her jaw was bruised and swollen, and her lip was split open. In some versions of the story, it's said that she even suffered a broken jaw, although that's likely an exaggeration considering how much talking she did to the police after. Thalia told the officers that shortly after leaving the Alawai Club, she was grabbed by a stranger who shoved her into a car. Then she was driven to Ala Moana Boulevard, where a group of four or five men dragged her into the bushes and repeatedly raped her. Right away, the patrol officers noted there were problems with Thalia's story. She told them it was too dark to identify the men, nor could she describe the car or the license plate. The best she could say was the vehicle had a flapping top. She was unable to even say for certain if the men had been Hawaiian or not. Right around the same time Thalia was giving her statement to the patrolman, another report was coming into police headquarters about another altercation. Shortly after midnight, a Hawaiian woman and her husband nearly got into an accident with another car driven by a group of young men who had been out drinking and joyriding. A loud argument ensued and one of the men punched the woman in the face. The woman and her husband were able to provide police the license plate number of the vehicle. The Honolulu chief of detectives, John McIntosh, put two and two together and decided these had to be the same young men who had attacked Thalia Massey. By the following afternoon, police had arrested all five suspects. They were all young men who lived in the Sidi Kalihi Palama district. The driver was a young Japanese man named Horace Ida. David Takai was another Japanese member of the group. Ben Ahakuela and Joseph Kahahavai were both native Hawaiians, while Henry Chang was Hawaiian-Chinese. They admitted they'd all been drinking that night, and Joseph Kahahavai, a local boxer, even confessed to punching the woman after the near accident. But the real question was whether these men had anything to do with Thalia Massey's assault. By this point, word had reached the Masseys about the young men's arrests. It wasn't long after that when Thalia Massey began claiming her memory had finally begun to clear up about the details that particular night. This included providing the police the license plate number of the car she said she'd been dragged into, which closely matched the license plate number of Horace Ida's vehicle. But some of the details still didn't add up. For one, Horace Ida's car didn't have a flapping top. And besides that, Thalia's own doctors reported her vision was terrible even in the light of day, much less in the middle of the night, making it pretty unlikely she'd have been able to read the license plate number. But the story of Thalia Massey's assault was picking up steam. It made its way all the way up the chain of command to Admiral Yates Sterling, the Commandant of the 14th Naval District. Admiral Sterling was outraged that these brown-skinned natives had the nerve to lay hands on a white woman, especially the wife of a naval officer. Sterling was a staunch white supremacist, and he saw this as an attack on the entire white race. The Admiral and the press leaned hard on the local detectives to prosecute the five young men to the fullest extent of the law. Admiral Sterling told several people he wanted to personally string the men up. All the early news stories about the incident described Thalia Massey as a refined and cultured young woman who had been gravely injured. The same articles were quick to describe the five suspects as fiends, gangsters, and thugs. Long before the trial began, newspapers printed all five of the men's mugshots, along with their names and addresses. It didn't matter that the patrol officers who took Thalia Massey's original statement admitted they had doubts about her story. 
especially when Thalia was suddenly able to recall a number of fresh details she wasn't able to tell them the night of the incident. Keep in mind, this isn't some attempt to shame the victim here. Considering the injuries to her face, it's clear something happened to Thalia Massey that night. Although evidence does seem to indicate the story she told wasn't what really occurred. Some witnesses came forward later who swore they saw a howly man walking behind her that night after she left the party. But the pressure was on, and the Hawaii Five O chief of detectives had already decided he had the guilty parties in custody. Statements from some witnesses were given to police that the same drunken Navy lieutenant Thalia had slapped earlier in the evening was seen wandering just a few blocks away from the Massey home were ignored. Although it's been speculated by some historians that Lieutenant Ralph Moose Stogsdall may have followed Thalia out of the party and assaulted her, this theory was never pursued by detectives. The idea that Thalia might have been assaulted by one of the Navy's own men was something nobody wanted to consider. It was later revealed that the license plate number Thalia Massey gave to police had actually been fed to her by the police themselves. They even drove Horace Ida's car along the road Thalia Massey claimed she'd been on in an attempt to match the tire tracks up, only to thoroughly destroy any evidence that might have been left behind. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. For the most part, the fix was in, and the police and prosecutors were eager to convict the five men. At the same time, there were some members of the police department, most of them native Hawaiian, who began leaking information to newspapers that contradicted the official version of events. Even though Thalia's name had been kept out of the papers, a lot of people knew exactly who they were talking about. Thalia's reputation preceded her, and rumors spread like wildfire about her public drunkenness, the violent fights she'd had with her husband, and with her extramarital affairs. In the days following the arrest, there was one powerful force who arrived in Hawaii to defend her, Thalia's mother, Grace. Once news broke of what had happened, Grace Hubbard Bell Fortescue flew in from New York. Grace Fortescue had come from a wealthy and prominent family, and she'd be damned if she was going to stand by and watch her family's reputation be tarnished any more than it had already been. Grace Fortescue had quite a pedigree from her family name. Her uncle was none other than Alexander Graham Bell, her father, Charles Bell, had been a millionaire banker. On her mother's side of the family, she counted among her kin the first president of Bell Telephone and the founder of the National Geographic Society. But by the time Grace Fortescue arrived in Hawaii, practically all she had left was her reputation. Her husband, Roly Fortescue, had squandered away their fortune and refused to get a job. Not long before Thalia's assault, Grace was evicted from an apartment she'd rented because she wasn't able to pay the rent. 
Things grew so tight for her that she actually had to resort to teaching bridge to friends and neighbors to make money. Her daughter Thalia had always been a sore spot for Grace Fortescue. Thalia's drinking and wild carousing were black marks on her good family name. Grace had hoped that marrying a respectable Navy man would cause Thalia to settle down, but that wasn't to be the case. Following the incident, Thalia went to see a counselor who encouraged her to write out a list of what troubled her. Thalia wrote about how much she hated her husband and how she felt she should be living a lifestyle more befitting a woman of her upbringing. The counselors went on to report that Thalia was a classic narcissist and even a borderline psychopath. They told Thomas Massey his wife needed serious psychiatric help beyond what they could provide. By the time the trial opened in November 1931, Thalia Massey was positively reveling in all the attention she had been receiving. When Thalia took the witness stand, she gave the performance of a lifetime. Her attorneys had coached her on how to act like a grief-stricken woman. She gave graphic testimony about the assault. By now, she was able to identify her assailants by name and even claimed on the witness stand that she'd become pregnant following the rape. Physicians for the defense testified that this was a lie and that Thaley had never been pregnant. Several independent witnesses were brought forward who claimed to have seen the five defendants miles away from the location where Thaley Massey said she'd been abducted. All this contradictory testimony thoroughly confused the jury. When they were unable to reach a verdict, the judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial, after which the defendants were able to go free pending a new trial. Admiral Sterling completely blew his stack when he heard what happened. He considered the mistrial nothing short of a public disgrace. Like a lot of high-ranking military officers in the area, Sterling had nothing but contempt for the native Hawaiians. And he had publicly admitted on prior occasions how much he resented the fact that these brown-skinned people were able to become U.S. citizens simply by being born in Hawaii. Keep in mind, at the time this was all going on, the United States Navy had growing concerns about the rapid expansion of the Japanese fleet across the Pacific Ocean. The growing Japanese Navy was beginning to look like a genuine threat to U.S. interests. A big part of Admiral Sterling's job was to maintain control of the Hawaiian Islands at any cost. In 1931, there were only around 370,000 people living in Hawaii, and nearly half of those were Japanese. White people were vastly outnumbered by Japanese and native Hawaiians, all of which, coupled together with the Massey mistrial, led Admiral Sterling to push hard for a new trial and conviction for the sake of white supremacy in the islands. While white racists were pushing hard to string the five men up, Hawaiian Princess Abigail Kwananakoa tried to reassure her people to have faith in the American system of justice. Guilt or innocence had to be determined in a court of law, she said. But many natives have a difficult time accepting that a system created by Howleys could ever be fair to them. Following the mistrial, a gang of white sailors grabbed Horace Ida and tried to beat a confession out of him. When Honolulu detectives went to Admiral Sterling trying to get some answers, he stonewalled them. After that, the Admiral took action and wrote an official report to the U.S. Congress containing a laundry list of false charges and claimed that the non-white members of the jury refused to convict their own kind. He painted a wildly racist picture of the Hawaiian government. He said the mixed-race legislature couldn't get anything done. Crime was rampant, and gangsters ruled the streets. Women lived in constant fear because of the many sex crimes that went unpunished. He claimed there had been 40 rapes in just the last year alone. 
None of this was true, of course, but it was still enough to ramp up the anger and paranoia surrounding the Native Hawaiians. That phony number of 40 rapes became a sort of chant that got repeated on radio news broadcasts across the country. This sort of bad publicity sent shockwaves throughout the Haole elite who ruled Hawaii. The islands were dependent on tourism, and now people were becoming terrified to visit. The Hawaiian economy also depended heavily on the sugar export business. But even that was being threatened by an angry Congress who thought the place was out of control. Territorial Governor Lawrence Judd was forced to become the point man to turn the island's reputation around. He came from one of the oldest missionary families in the islands, and he had been personally appointed to his post by President Herbert Hoover. Governor Judd publicly announced that he was going to clean house in the police department and prosecutor's offices. At the same time, the chief of naval operations in Washington, D.C. made a devastating threat of his own. He was going to cancel shore leave for the sailors during upcoming fleet maneuvers, potentially costing the island businesses millions of dollars. He also proclaimed that the Navy men were well within their rights to exact revenge on Thalia Massey's assailants to stand up for her honor. The Honolulu Chamber of Commerce stepped in and offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the five men. But no new information came forward. Prosecutors next tried a new tactic and attempted to get one of the men to flip on the others and confess. They went to Ben Ahakawela and offered him the $5,000 reward if only he'd admit what he and his friends did. But Ben flat out refused. He insisted they were innocent. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Babbel, a language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. I wish I'd had Babbel back when I was in high school learning Spanish. It would have made things so much easier for me. Babbel provides users with a choice of 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, German, and many more. Babbel is a fun and easy-to-use app designed to help you learn a new language in only a few weeks. Each convenient lesson is broken up into short, bite-sized chunks that only take around 10 to 15 minutes to complete. Each lesson was crafted by more than 100 language experts. You can use Babbel as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. This is what has helped make Babbel the number one selling language learning app in the world. So if you're interested in learning a new language, guess what? You're in luck. Right now, listeners to The Conspirators can try Babbel for free. Download the app or text CONSPIRACY to 48-48-48. Text CONSPIRACY to 48-48-48 to try Babbel for free. That's C-O-N-S-P-I-R-A-C-Y to 48-48-48. And now, back to the show. By early January 1932, a new trial still hadn't been scheduled for the five men. And many naval officers were growing angry why nothing else had been done. At the same time, rumors continued to spread about Thalia Massey's erratic and promiscuous behavior. All this continued to get under the skin of Grace Fortescue, who finally decided to take matters into her own hands. On January 8th, Grace came up with a plan to force a confession out of one of the men. Grace recruited Tommy and two of his Navy buddies, Albert Jones and Edward Lord, to help her out with her scheme. They stalked the movements of the five men, and at one point learned they had an appointment with a bail officer at the courthouse. There, in broad daylight, they kidnapped Joseph Kahavai, forcing him into a rented limousine. 
They took him to Grace Fortescue's house in Manoa Valley, where they parked him in a chair and threatened him at gunpoint to confess. But Joseph Kahavai refused to cooperate. Things grew heated, and at some point, one of them shot him in the chest, allowing him to bleed to death. None of them ever made any attempt to save him. They wrapped the body in a sheet and drove Joseph out to some cliffs with the intention of tossing him into the ocean. Meanwhile, police had been alerted that Joseph had been kidnapped and were on the lookout for Grace's car. A motorcycle officer spotted the limo and chased after them. A number of other police cars got involved in the chase and were eventually able to run the limo off the road. When they popped open the door, they discovered Joseph Kahavai's body in the back seat. Grace Fortescue stepped out showing no remorse at all for the man's death. Grace Fortescue was arrested and brought back to the police station. She refused to answer questions, although Thalia put herself back in the spotlight and made a statement to the press that Joseph Kahavai got what he deserved. The story of the lynching spread like wildfire in the press. Newspapers all over the U.S. described the lynching and released details of Thalia's assault. Most of the stories that were written were slanted in a way that tried to make the killing of Joseph Kahavai sound completely justified. This wasn't a lynching, but a case of a loving husband valiantly defending his wife's honor. Telegrams of support came from many of the Grace's powerful friends and connections. Wealthy socialites, wives, and daughters of congressmen, and many more chimed in with words of support for Grace and the Masseys. By now, several of Grace's wealthy friends and family were talking to members of Congress and the War Department. Hearst newspapers published inflammatory headlines demanding justice. Some people in Washington began threatening to declare martial law in Hawaii and put the military in charge to stave off race riots. Riots were, of course, the farthest thing away from happening among the Hawaiian natives. All the rage and paranoia appeared to be one-sided. For native Hawaiians, this was a time of grieving, and a time to lay Joseph Kahahawai to rest. Thousands of people attended Joseph's funeral, which was held at a Catholic cathedral. In the graveyard, Joseph's father told everyone that he asked his son if he was guilty, and Joseph assured him he was not. He said he swore in a Bible that he had nothing to do with Thalia Massey, and that was good enough for him. Grace Fortescue, Thomas Massey, and the other two sailors were all taken in Navy custody, since it was widely believed among the Howleys that they were in grave danger of reprisal. Grace and the others were held on the USS Alton. While she was there, Grace took over the captain's quarters and was treated like royalty. She was given a team of stewards ready to serve her every whim. Reporters flocked to the island from all the major news organizations. Grace ended up giving an interview to the New York Times in which she expressed only a single regret for the murder, and that was that she regretted pulling the shades on the limousine to cover up Joseph Kahavai's body. She wished she'd left them open so everyone could see what she had done. Although Grace didn't have any money of her own, she still had plenty of wealthy friends who got together and hired for her the most famous attorney in America, the legendary Clarence Darrow. This case was far removed from the cases that made Darrow's reputation as one of the greatest legal minds of his generation. A man who had once successfully defended the rights of public schools in Tennessee to teach evolution in the Scopes Monkey Trial was now defending a woman accused of a racist lynching. Darrow would later admit that he only took the case for two reasons. One, he had lost a fortune in the stock market crash and needed the money. And two, he had never been to Hawaii before and he'd always wanted a vacation there. 
Darrow figured his best tactic was to stack the jury in his favor, but despite his best efforts, he was unable to fill it with all white people. When a jury was selected containing a number of people of other ethnicities, he tried a different tactic and began building sympathy for Grace Fortescue and Thalia Massey. What would you do if your daughter was violently raped by five men, he asked them. Thalia took the stand to recount her certainty that Joseph Kahavai and the other men were the ones who had attacked her. The defense tried shaking Thalia's testimony by presenting her with the report she had written to her counselor, detailing how much she despised her husband. Thalia tearfully shredded the documents right there on the stand, crying out to Joseph how much she really loved him. During the prosecutor's closing arguments, he told the jury they needed to vote their conscience, and that if they failed to convict Grace and Tommy, then they'd be telling the world it was all right to lynch someone. The jury agreed with the prosecutor, and Grace Fortescue and the other defendants were found guilty. They were each sentenced to 10 years in prison. This verdict sent shockwaves throughout the United States. The Hearst newspapers demanded the U.S. send battleships to Hawaii to rescue Grace and the other defendants. Angry columnists called for white rule to be instated across Hawaii. The pressure was enormous on Governor Judd. He and a lot of other Hawaiian elites were genuinely worried that if they didn't cave in to public demands, the U.S. military would step up and seize control of the islands away from them. After four days of angry newspaper articles and letters pouring into City Hall, Governor Judd finally relented and reduced the sentences for each of the defendants from 10 years to just one hour spent in his office. After that, the Navy sailed Grace, Tommy, and Thalia away from Hawaii for a port in San Francisco. There, they were greeted with a hero's welcome and much fanfare. The ranking admiral in San Francisco gave them free use of his personal car and driver. Following the trial, once tensions began to die down in the islands, the territorial government in Honolulu hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency to retrace the steps of everyone involved and to get to the bottom of what really happened in Thalia's assault. After re-interviewing all the witnesses and studying all the available evidence, the Pinkertons reported that it was virtually impossible for Joseph Gahahavai and the other men to have been guilty. In the end, though, there was no real justice done in this case. Once again, the native Hawaiians were given yet another reason to distrust the Haoles who had invaded their land. Some of the more superstitious natives began to believe that divine justice would eventually be wrought on the Masseys. And perhaps they were right. Thomas and Thalia Massey divorced just two years after leaving the islands. In 1940, Tommy had a nervous breakdown and was retired out of the military. He spent the next 40 years living a bitter and penniless life. Thalia Massey continued to suffer mental issues for the remainder of her life as well. She attempted suicide several times before finally succeeding in 1963. The only one who appeared to avoid any sort of curse was Grace Fortescue. She made some money publishing her life story in a book. Then she later inherited a fortune from her father. She spent the rest of her life living a life of luxury in a mansion in Palm Beach, Florida. She was known to enjoy water skiing and other sports all the way into her 70s. She lived a long and contented life all the way up to her death in 1979 at age 96. That would make Grace Fortescue one of those rare people in history who ever got away happily with murder. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to remind you that listeners of the show have the opportunity to try out Babbel, the number one selling language learning app in the world, for free. All you need to do is download the app or text CONSPIRACY to 484848. 48 48. 
That's C-O-N-S-P-I-R-A-C-Y to 484848. I also need to thank a bunch of new Patreon supporters. Thank you so much to Douglas, Michael, Go, Christine, Joe, and the mysteriously named 292. I like the way you think. Patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Besides Patreon, another excellent way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each and every one of your reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and helps spread the good word about the conspirators to more listeners. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and many of your favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again to each and every one of you for tuning into each episode, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Stay woke, my friends.